stories, stories are magnificent things, right? Stories are absolutely fantastic. I love stories. I'm sure you love stories too. Stories are captivating. They're riveting. They get right to the soul. We love them. We love getting to these plot lines, following these characters, watching them develop, seeing what they're going to do. We almost become these characters. We love stories. And in fact, our culture is absolutely fascinated by stories, are we not? And if you don't think so, look at Hollywood, look at movies and TV shows. Just look at these, what we do with these, how much money, how much revenue these people bring in. And you know for a fact that we love stories. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Avengers? Y'all know the movie Avengers? I think I just got every elementary boy listening for the first time ever in church, all right? Y'all know the Avengers? We got, well, we got Thor, Captain America, Hulk, one and only Iron Man. We got some pretty cool dudes, all right? In the opening weekend of the Avengers movie, just the opening weekend, not, not the entire gross amount, but the opening weekend of the Avengers brought in the most money ever in the history of movies. Here's how much it brought in. $207.4 million. Now, I'm not talking the whole, I mean, most movies can't even dream about making that much money. That's a lot of dough on the first weekend. $207.4 million on the first weekend. Mockingjay Part 1, y'all see that one too? Hunger Games, you know, Jennifer Lawrence. I, I call her J-Law, then I get in trouble because it's J-Lo, according to Nicole. So Jennifer Lawrence with Mockingjay Part 1, I thought that was funny, but okay. $121.9 million is what it brought in on its opening weekend. Twilight, New Moon Saga, I know most of you guys are going, Psh, Twilight, come on now. But Twilight, New Moon, brought in $142.8 million on its opening weekend. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, the second one, I like that one a lot too. That one brought in $135.6 million on its opening weekend. And, and honestly, before, before you old folks, and honestly, if I say old folks, anyone who's older than me is an old folks. So Gavin, you're an old guy too, all right? Just because you think you're young, you're not. But anyone who's older than me, that's an old folk, and that's, we're just going to leave it at that, all right? We're just going to leave it there. Before you start hitting on me a little bit, back in 1983, there was this show's last and final episode, and it brought in over 150 million viewers worldwide. Now, the Avengers only had 20 million. This one had 150. 1983, the last episode for this TV show. Do you guys know what TV show I'm talking about? Mash. Wow, that was really cool, man. I don't even think I've seen an episode of MASH, and now we're like... Mash, yep, that's it. 150 million people tune in to watch the last episode of MASH. Our culture is absolutely fascinated by stories, are we not? We love them so much. But you know what? Stories are a part of our culture, but stories have been a part of every single culture. When you look at every history, every civilization, stories have always been a part of that culture. You go back to thousands of years, way, way, way back. I'm talking even older than dirt, okay? We're talking really old right now. They used stories to communicate a message. Now, they didn't have literary forms. They didn't write. They didn't read. They didn't have textbooks. They didn't have all this English class and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure some of you guys are thinking, why can't we have no English class? But y'all need English class. But they had no way to communicate besides talking. It was called oral tradition. This is what this is called. And basically what oral tradition is, is people would memorize, they would learn, and then they would tell the next generation stories and history about their people. And then they would tell the next person and the next person and the next person. So stuff was passed along by word of mouth. It was memorized, recited, and repeated. That's what oral tradition is. In fact, it wasn't until thousands of years later, 700 B.C., where we have the first ever written story. It was called The Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, I don't know if you all have ever read that book or not. It's in a lot of literature books, but The Epic of Gilgamesh, it was the first ever written book in 700 B.C. But just so you guys know, the story of The Epic of Gilgamesh actually started in the year 2000 
B.C. So over a thousand years passed before it was ever put on paper. Aesop's Fables. You guys ever heard of Aesop's Fables? I love Aesop's Fables with the grasshopper and the ant, all this kind of fun stuff. He lived in the year 500 B.C. There was a long time before his stuff was even written down, too. There was 300 years that passed where Aesop's Fables, before they came, just word of mouth, and they became written on paper. The year 200 B.C. is when the first ever Aesop's Fables were written down for everyone to know. We love stories. They love stories. In fact, the Old Testament, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but the Old Testament is absolutely full of stories. And in fact, we actually have a literary genre for these Old Testament stories, and they're called narratives. Stories like, you know, David and Goliath. Yeah, you all know that one? I sure hope you know that one. Uh, Noah's Ark, Daniel and the Den of Lions, Gideon and the Trumpets. These are all Bible stories that we tell the kids year after year after year. It doesn't matter what year it is. It doesn't matter what what kids they are. They always love these, these, these narratives. Why? Because they're stories. We love stories. We're absolutely fascinated by stories. And in fact, getting to a little bit more modern era, you know, we hit in the old school. We're going to get into the new school a little bit. We have people like Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, Scott Fitzgerald, Dr. Seuss, J.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. And we love these guys. Why do we love them? They're master storytellers. We have people in today's day and age that are master storytellers as well. We have people like J.K. Rowling. You guys recognize that name? She wrote Harry Potter. We have another ones like Suzanne Collins, who wrote the Hunger Games series. We have people like even Ted Decker, who I love Ted Decker, the Circle Trilogy. Phenomenal stuff. It'll give you goosebumps and it won't make you sleep for days. But he's Christian, so it's all good, right? Just saying. We have even people that my dad followed, Tom Clancy. Y'all ever heard Tom Clancy? We have even video games after this dude. These people were master storytellers. And I know these are names that, you know, we're maybe not supposed to use in church. It might not be good to talk about Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling in church. But whether you like them, whether you're not, whether you agree with them, whether you don't, whether you approve of them or not, the facts remain the same. They're master storytellers. Our culture, our society lifts these people up on a pedestal and say, you cannot be a better storyteller than these people. And they've won awards, they've won accolades because of their ability to tell stories. Even the late Steve Jobs was a master storyteller. And y'all were wondering why I was going to work my Apple into this message, right? I always got some kind of Apple little tidbit to throw in there, huh? Maybe not. But Steve Jobs, he was a master storyteller. In fact, he was known as, if not one of the best, but the best business storyteller that has ever lived. Why is that? He, has the, he had a way of telling you something, to draw you in, to bring you in, to be a part of this whole story, and then make you spend $4,000 on a computer. I mean, the dude was just a magician. He was phenomenal. But either way, he was a master storyteller as well, so much so that people actually study his talks. They study his presentations, his keynotes. They even study the dude's PowerPoints in college classes on how to be an expert communicator. We have expert communicators, master storytellers that we love, that we follow, that we want to be a part of. And actually, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus told stories all the time, too. When you look through the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the narrative of Jesus' life, he tells stories all the time. In fact, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one of my favorite stories that, I, that, that Jesus ever told. And it's found in the book of Luke. So go ahead and grab your Bible today if you got it with you. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Some of you guys got your iPads, so grab out your iPad. You can click away, grab your phone. Some of y'all even got phones that are like the size of like, like, like the size of a baby. I mean, y'all got some big phone. Luke, is your, I don't even know how your phone fits in your pocket, bro. I mean, the thing's the size of my iPad. So grab your phablet because it ain't a phone. It's not a tablet. So grab your phablet. Open it up to Luke chapter 10. And hey, if you are new here to Southside, let me just say welcome. I know it's Patrick 
Pastor Scott already welcomed you as well. But let me say welcome. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't, didn't bring one with you, if you don't have one, download on your app. There are Bibles in the pews right in front of you, right below. And honestly, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab that Bible, take it home with you. We want the Word of God to be everybody. We're not stingy here. Take that as a free gift for you. And honestly, if you want one that maybe looks a little cooler, a little aesthetically more pleasing, you know, just because it looks like a pew Bible, come see me. Come see Pastor Scott. We can hook you up with the Bible as well, all right? So Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. And like I said, Jesus loved to tell stories. In fact, whenever you see Jesus want to prove a point or make a truth known, he many times follows it up with a story to drive the point home. But the story that we're going to look at is a little bit different. Most of the time, Jesus tells a story, and then he'll tell what the story means. Sometimes he won't. But in this story, he actually gives a command. He actually tells you to do something with this story. And this is the title of the sermon. You see it on the PowerPoint behind me. It says, go and do the same. We're going to see today that this one little tiny statement has huge ramifications, both for the Jewish people who heard the story and for us as well here in 21st century South Bend. So Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. If you grab your Bible, if not, um, I'm going to have the words up here on the screen too, so feel, feel free to follow along there if you'd rather do so as such. But we're going to pick up in verse 25, and we're going to go to 37. I forgot, but if you did not receive a bulletin and get like a little gold for... Notre Dame was supposed to win last night, man. That's why I picked gold color, but Kentucky, man, I do not like them right now. They're worse than Michigan right now. But if you don't have one of those yellow sheets of paper for your notes, raise your hand up. One of the ushers will hook you up and get one. To, almost the entire worship team doesn't have one. That's, that's crazy. But make sure you get one of those and follow along. Just so you guys know, we're not going to hit those towards the end of the service. So you've got plenty of time to get to your notes, all right? So let's jump in God's word and see what he has to say for us today. Picking up at Luke 10, verse 20, excuse me, verse 25. Just then... An expert of the law stood up to test him, test him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, But who is my neighbor? Then Jesus took up the question and said this story. A man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, they fled, leaving him half dead. Then a priest happens to be going down that same road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed by on the other side as well. But then a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man... He had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and the wine. He put him on his own animal, his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you have to spend. Then Jesus asked, Which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said, then Jesus said this, and this is what we're going to focus on today, go and do the same. All right, so we're going to talk about the story a little bit. We're going to give you the setup, see what's going on so we know what God wants to tell us, all right? So there was a, there was a man. Well, actually, i got to go back a little bit because the story doesn't begin there. One day, Jesus was teaching, and a lawyer, an expert in the law, a religious man, came up to Jesus. And I just said, oh, basically, every translation you got. So if it's a lawyer or expert in the law or... Um, a religious scholar, it all means the same thing. Basically, what it's saying is this man who came and asked you as a question knew the law of Moses inside and out. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, this dude had to memorize 
He could repeat them. He could pop them out whenever he wanted to. He studied them. He devoted his entire life to knowing these first five books of the entire Bible. So this guy knew his stuff. He came up to Jesus and asked Jesus one time when Jesus was teaching. And he said, the million dollar question that everybody's asking, right? Jesus, what can I do to receive eternal life? Now, eternal life was a little bit different and for the Jewish culture and for the Christian culture. Because for the Jewish culture, they had no recollection of who Jesus was. They didn't know the Messiah. They didn't know that he was, well, eventually they did, that he was going to die. He was going to rise again. He was going to save them from, from your sins. All you got to do is accept him and you go to heaven and be with God forever. That's not how the Jew viewed it. The Jew viewed it as when God comes back, the Messiah comes back, establishes his kingdom here on earth, that they will rule and reign with God in his kingdom forever. That's what they viewed in salvation. Ultimately, that's the final destination of all of us. If we are saved, if we do follow Jesus, when we do trust Christ as our Lord and Savior of our lives, we will go to heaven with God. But when Christ comes back here to earth, we'll be ruling and reigning and hanging out with Jesus. It's going to be awesome. So in the all, all sense, of the, sense of the word, what's eternal life, they had different ideas, but it's all the same general thing. And that's the question everyone wants to know, right? Everyone walking around this earth is, what can I do to have eternal life? How can I get to heaven? How can I be with God? How can I be with Jesus? This lawyer asked Jesus the exact same question. But Jesus, first is just answering, he shoots him back a question. He goes, all right, bro, 21st hipster Jesus, I guess he would say bro. But bro, dude, what, is, what, is, what do you know? What does the Torah say? What does the law of Moses say? And he goes, well, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the Hebrew Shema. This is the prayer that they said two times a day right when they woke up, right before they went to bed. He knew this inside and out. And in fact, if you want to have a little fun with it, talk to Nicole, because Nicole can actually rattle off the whole Shema in Hebrew. So you get her, get ready, all right, babe? She can rattle the whole thing off in Hebrew because she had to learn it when she went to Israel. But he knew this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus looked at him and go, yeah, you're right. Now stop sitting here, stop talking, and go do something about it. This was a little bit of an embarrassment to this lawyer because he was the one who was trying to test Jesus. And instead, Jesus flipped face on him a little bit, embarrassed him, and basically was like, dude, you know what you're doing? Why are you sitting here talking to me? You know what you're talking about. You don't need me to answer that question. Why don't you go do something about it then? And the Bible even says that he was trying to justify himself. He was embarrassed to death. So to get back at Jesus, he says, okay, Jesus, so who is my neighbor then? If I'm supposed to love everybody, who is my neighbor? Is it my actual neighbor? Is it just the Jewish people? Jesus, who's my neighbor? And that's when Jesus gets into the story. All right, there's a man, there's a certain man, a Jewish man. He was traveling on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't a normal road that we think about. You know, this wasn't like going to Potato Creek, walking on some nice little path where you got the birds chirping and you got your, got your sunny delight right there and you're just enjoying nature. It wasn't anything like that. Go ahead and pop the picture up there for me, please. This is what the road looked like. It was a 17-mile long passage through the mountainside, twisty, whiny, curvy, no water. It was hot. It was a desert. It was, it was just nasty. Now, there is a monastery in the picture, St. Saint, Saint George's, St. Gregory. I can't remember which one. St. George's Monastery. Just get the monastery out because that wasn't there back when Jesus was on earth. So think of traveling down this passageway for 17 miles. This was the path that he had to take. So he was taking this path, and while he was walking back home, some punks decided to jump out. They took his lunch money. They beat him up. They took his possessions. They took his horse. They took him everything of this guy owned and left him for dead. Not soon long after, though, a, a priest shows up. A priest shows up, and, and when, when you heard the word priest, this meant really a big thing in the Jewish culture because what was a priest? 
The priest was the most religious man in all of Israel. Wasn't necessarily the high priest, but one of the priests. This guy knew his stuff. If there was anyone who was going to help this man, who supposedly loved God, interceded on behalf of men, he, he, he was the dude. If anyone was going to help this guy, he was going to show up and take care of him. But he didn't. He passed by on the other side. Go ahead and throw that picture up one more time for me real quickly, Erica. If you look at the road, do you see how skinny the road actually is? I mean, it's pretty huge when you really think about it because you put it in perspective of the monastery there. But there's no way that the, that the priest is going to miss the dude that's sitting there dying. Okay, there's absolutely no way. So what did the priest do? He saw him. He ignored him. He passed by on the other side, and he kept going home. Okay, priest didn't do his thing. Next guy to show up on the scene with a Levite. Now, who was a Levite? A Levite was also a form of a priest as well, but a little bit different. You see, the priest came from directly from the line of who? Directly from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother. That's who a priest was, and according to this passage. Straight from the line of Aaron, direct descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. Who was a Levite? A Levite was just someone who was in the tribe of Israel. Just someone who was, you know, you know had a mom and they had a dad, and they were Levites, and they made little Levite babies. That's what a Levite was, okay? He still... He knew his stuff. He knew the Bible. He was a temple helper. He was a church helper. Okay, so to put this in perspective a little bit, I want to get it back in 21st century a little bit to help you guys understand. Think of a priest being a lead pastor of a church, all right? Think of Pastor Scott. What does Pastor Scott do for us? He shepherds us. He teaches us. He shows us our ways. He counsels us. When you think about it, he is the man of God of Southside Baptist Church. And it's a scary place to be, Pastor, I know, but it is what it is, man. Who's the, honestly, can I just say he does a stinking awesome job? Can I say that? He does an awesome job. So can you just thank Pastor Scott for all he does real quick? Thank you, Pastor Scott. We love you, man. We love you. So who would be a Levite then? A Levite would be, you know, like an associate pastor, executive pastor, youth pastor, child pastor, someone on church staff who's, he's not the man, but the dude still knows his stuff, all right? If, 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 the, if, if the pastor isn't there, you can generally go to these people to help. So either way, these guys were the most religious people in all of Israel. If you need help, you go to a pastor. If the pastor's not there, you go to someone else in the church who knows the answers. That's the same idea here in this church. A little different context, but the same idea. So the Levite was the next man. You think, oh, dude, you know, maybe the priest was too busy. You know, maybe he had to go, you know, go to Starbucks, meet some dude, talk to some guy, count some a little bit. Maybe he was just too busy. You know, pastor, pastor's always busy. They're always busy. Let me just tell you, they're always busy. Maybe the next guy can help me out. But what does the Levite do? Does the Levite go over and help him? No, no, he sure doesn't. He does the same exact thing as what the priest does. He walks up to the man, he sees him, he ignores him, and he passes by on the other side. Now, the way, this is kind of a cool little aspect that I saw when I was studying this week. The way Old Testament um, rabbis, teachers taught, they taught in a, in a trifold system. In other words, they give two examples and then the one that's correct. So the people were expecting Jesus to say a third person. Okay, so it wasn't the, wasn't the prophet Jesus, wasn't the Levite, so who is it? It's probably a common Jew, right? They're going to show up at the priest, make them look like these religious people who don't really love people and they just want it for themselves, right? That's, that's what they're probably thinking. They're probably thinking of some common Jew to show up at the priest because Jesus made fun of the priest all the time. But that's not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus takes the entire story and flips it on his head. Who do we see that comes next? We see a Samaritan. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, you know what the connotation is of a Samaritan. You know why I'm saying the Samaritan was not a good dude. But if you haven't been in church in a while, you're like, dude, what's so wrong with Samaritan? You know, we got the good Samaritan law. We got ministries. We got organizations. We even got churches that put the word Samaritan in their place. What's so bad about a Samaritan? They seem to be pretty good people, and we think they're good. In this point in time, and even right now, 
The Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans. And I'm not talking like just a little bit of hate, like, you know, they, they messed me over, so I'm going to hate them. I'm talking pure, unfiltered hatred for the Jews. Samaritans were half-bloods. Samaritans were not pure-blooded Jews. They were, they were part Jews, and then they were part heathen Gentiles. They were half-bloods. They were not pure. God chose the people of Israel. He loved the people of Israel. He didn't choose these Gentiles. Gentiles were bad. Jews were good. We got that? Jews were good. Gentiles were bad. That's why they hated them. But why? That still doesn't make any sense, does it? Why they would hate them just because they're half-bloods. Here's what happened. In the Babylonian captivity, which is a lot of part of our Bible, if you look in the book of Daniel and then you look in some of the other prophets, it's during the Babylonian captivity. During this time, some of the Jews decided to go and have children with the heathen Gentiles, the people that hated God. And then there were Jews over here on the other side that said, no, 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 no. Jews are pure. God loved the Jews. He didn't love the Gentiles. So because the Jews, there's many Jews that turned their backs supposedly on God and went and, and married and had kids with these, these, these dirty, nasty Gentiles, there's a big hatred between them, all right? And in fact, I want to put this in perspective a little bit, how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. So I got a quote for you here real quick. Um, it's by, uh, by a second century B.C. Jewish scribe, and he says, Two nations my soul detests. And the third's not even a people. Those who live in Seir and the Philistines and the foolish people that live in Shechem. Now, what does this mean? There's three nations, Seir, Philistines, and Shechem. Seir, they're the people of Edom, the Edomites, the people who come from Esau, the brother of Jacob, the enemy of the Jews. Who were the Philistines? The Philistines were the people that they were always at war with. They were just, you know, they were a pain in the side. They couldn't get rid of them. They always showed up. You know, a big old Goliath was from the Philistines. The Jews hated for the Philistines. Why? The Philistines were just bullies. That's really what it was. Now, the people of Shechem were the people of Samaria. Shechem and Samaria were used interchangeably, kind of like, you know, I live in South Bend. No, I live in Michiana. Okay, kind of all the same place here, all right? So Shechem and Samaria mean the same place. Do you want to guess who Ben was talking about here when he says one people's not even a nation? Two people my soul detest, Seir and Philistines. The Samaritans aren't even a people. People used to pray that when God came, that he would forgive all nations, forgive everybody, but forget the Samaritans and throw them into hell. Get rid of them. They hated the Samaritans. And if, if we want to put this in a proper context for today's day and age, think of Laura Edwards' hatred for Ohio State and Michigan. You know what I'm talking about, Laura? You know what I'm talking about? You hate them, don't you? You hate them, man. You go, Hail, hail Notre Dame, right? Okay, maybe I thought that was funny when I wrote it, but okay, maybe not. But Notre Dame, what? We hate, now we hate Kentucky too, but we hate Michigan, we hate Ohio State. But it's even more hatred than that, all right? Now, this is going to touch some pretty, pretty, um, pretty sensitive points in a lot of people's hearts, all right? A lot of, lot, it touches me too really bad. But think of the southern white people before, enduring, and even after the civil rights movement, hatred for the African Americans, all right? They, I'm just saying it the way it is, all right? I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying anything is good about this at all. But there is a white supremacy, white rules, and blacks aren't even a people. They don't deserve to live. They, have, they, they deserve to have their own water fountains, their own schools, their own churches, their own institutions, their own places. We don't want anything to do with them. Now, am I saying that that's good? No, that's, that's the worst thing ever I have ever heard in my entire life, and it disgusts me. Is racism still a problem? 
You better believe it sure is. Are we going to talk about it today? No, we're not going to talk about it today because that's not what the story is. But I'm trying to get in your picture this hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans. Do you got it in your head? How much these Jews really hated these Samaritans. So when the Samaritans showed up on the scene, all the Jews were like, Jesus, what on earth are you talking about here? So back to the story, all right? So the priest and the Levite just straight up ignored the guy. They straight up ignored their own person, their own Jewish person. But a Samaritan of all people come onto the scenes. What does a Samaritan do? Does the Samaritan pass by on the other side? No. What does a Samaritan do? He stops, goes over to the Jewish man. He goes over to the man that hates him. He took out his own wine, his own oil. He took care of the wounds. He bandaged him up. He put him on his own ride, all of one and what? Like maybe a horse, one half horsepower donkey or something like that. I don't even know. But he put the man on his own, his own donkey, took him to a hotel. And we're not talking just some like Motel 6, little nasty like Drake Motel down the road. We ain't talking that, all right? Because what does the pastor say? He paid what? Two denarii. Now, what's a denarii? One denarii equals a day's wage. So this guy played two days' wage for this guy to hang out at a hotel. So we're talking like NBC Suites, man. We're not talking about no little, we're not even talking Holiday Inn right now. We're talking about NBC Suites, the Hilton with the full-fledged omelet bar and the jacuzzi and the hot tub and the place place for your kids, the great workout center. We're talking like, we're talking the pinnacle of hotels. But does the Samaritan stop there? No. What does the Samaritan do? He goes, don't just take care of him now, but take care of whatever you got to do. Take care of anything he needs. And when I come back, I'm going to pay his debt completely. Whatever he needs, you take care of him. I'll come back and I'll pay his debt. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, but Jesus isn't done yet. Jesus then flips the script and looks at the Lord and goes, all right, dude, you gave, you gave me a question. I'm going to give you a question. Which one of these three guys was the neighbor to the man in need? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? What does the text say? Look down real quick. What does the text say? Let's try to find it. It's in verse, make sure I got this right. Verse 37, you see it? What does it say? The one who showed mercy to the man. The dude didn't even say the Samaritan. He hated Samaritan so much, he wasn't going to say, oh, the Samaritan was the good guy. No, 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 no. It was the man who showed mercy that was the neighbor. And what does Jesus say? All right, now you go and you do the same as the Samaritan. Go and do the same. At this point of the story, we know that this carries great weight for this Samaritan, and we know it carries great weight for us. What it meant for the Samaritan was is that it wasn't just his neighbor. It wasn't his family. It wasn't his friends. It wasn't his town. It wasn't even the Jewish people. It included the people who he hated most that were, was his neighbor, the person who he couldn't despise, he couldn't look at, he couldn't even say the name of. That's his neighbor. What does it mean for you? It doesn't mean your mom, doesn't mean your wife, doesn't mean your kids, doesn't mean your place where you work, doesn't mean your, your school, your church, your neighborhood, South Bend, Michiana, Indiana, United States of America. The person who you hate the most, and everybody does it, I, I have, this is something I deal with too. The person who you wish never here was on earth, that man's your neighbor. That's a strong implication of what Jesus is saying, isn't it? He ain't messing around here. The person who you despise the most, that man's your neighbor too. And we're supposed to do the same thing that the Good Samaritan does. So what does that mean for us today? Sure, go be Good Samaritan. Go be Good Samaritan to the person that, that, that we don't like, even if, even if we don't want to mess with the person that's our enemy. Be neighbor to him. But what does that really mean? How are we supposed to respond from this story from Jesus? And that's what we're trying to discover this morning, all right? 
But what exactly are we supposed to do? Are you supposed to just drive around South Bend, picking up hobos, dropping them off at the holiday, and be like, bro, I'll be back for you in a little bit. It's all good. We'll get some food. We'll take care of you. Is that what Jesus is saying? Or is he saying something completely different? Today from the story, we're going to answer two simple questions. This is where you guys' notes pick up. The nice little gold sheet of paper. This is where your notes pick up. We're going to answer two questions in regard to this story of what does it mean to be a good Samaritan. Question number one that we have to answer is, is, what does being a good neighbor have to do with obtaining eternal life? This is what the man was asking, wasn't it? The lawyer said, hey, Jesus, what can I do to have eternal life? What can I do? Jesus says, love God, love others. And he goes, okay, so who's my neighbor? And then all of a sudden, the story of the Good Samaritan shows up. Is Jesus saying that if you're a good person, if you do the right things, you're going to have salvation? Is he saying that if you're a nurse and you take care of people and you are honestly like, you are the best people in the world because y'all take care of people who, who, who just can't take care of themselves. Should, do nurses receive automatic salvation because they take care of people? If you go and you go to the South Bend Clinic, if you go to the women's shelter and you take care of people, does that secure your salvation? Is that what Jesus is really saying here? And honestly, no. No, it's not. Here's what Jesus is saying, all right? Jesus is saying that when you love your neighbor, you are indeed proving that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. All right? You got that? You got that? If you really love God, you're going to put your money where your mouth is, and you're actually going to love your neighbor more than yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here right now. It means that you no longer look out for yourself, but you look out for the needs of others. It means you no longer act or talk like this world, but we're called to holiness. It means that we're no longer supposed to hate and to judge, but we're supposed to love and forgive. It means that we're no longer supposed to ask, how can you serve me? But instead ask, how can I serve you? When we follow Jesus, we are now living a life that is supposed to make God's name great. That's what you're called to do as a follower of Jesus. That's what you're called to do as a follower away. You're supposed to make God's name great. When you claim to follow God and when you claim to love others, your actions will always match up with your love for others. All right, that's on your slip right there. I like that quote. So when you claim to follow God and when you claim to love God, your actions will always match up with the love of others. All right, Jennifer, that's good Facebook right there, all right? Tweet that, get Twitter out, hashtag Good Samaritan, okay? And yes, Nicole, you can tweet for me because I, I tweet during the service. Just so you know, Pastor Scott, I tweet during the service because I won't get the word out. But did you catch that? I'm going to say it one more time because I think it's the most important thing we can learn here, all right? When you claim to follow God and when you claim to love God, your actions will always match up with showing love to others. Jesus is not saying that loving others will give, give you eternal life, but when you love God and you follow Jesus, that's what gives you eternal life. When you love God and you choose to give your life to Jesus, follow the way, the one, the tr- the one way, the one truth, the one life, that's what gives you eternal life. You simply prove your devotion to God when you show love to the unlovable. When you love people who can't love you back, that's really showing love. Jesus gave, us this, Jesus gave us this illustration to show that we, are Christian, as Christians, are supposed to love who? Everybody. No matter the race, the color, the social class, the personality, the interest, a Christian should always be marked by showing love to others. All right, that's question one. The second question that we have to ask in regards to being a good Samaritan is, what steps can I take in order to be a neighbor to someone today? All right, that's the second question we ask. So we ask the first question, does it really give you eternal life? No, it doesn't. It just proves that you have eternal life, all right? But what steps can you take in order to be a good neighbor to someone today? 
All right, I like doing this with my teenagers, but I want to give you things that you can do and implement in your life right now. You wake up Monday morning, you know, I can do this, we can go, let's go do this. I want to give you three steps, three simple ways how you can go and be a good Samaritan to everybody, all right? And the first step that we need to do is we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to be a good Samaritan, all right? If you're never ready to help, how can you help? If you're never ready to go, how can you go? Now, the story does not mention that the Samaritan actually prepared himself to help. But honestly, when you look at his actions, what he was able to do, I think it kind of shows it. And we're going to take a quick second break here. I'm dealing with a cold, excuse me. So if I accidentally shake your hand, just, just make sure you Purell yourself after because I won't get anybody else sick, all right? But here you go. So you need to be prepared. If you're not ready to go, you're not going to be able to do it. The Samaritan, honestly, when you look at the text, it doesn't say the Samaritan was ready to go. He was ready to go. He had all his stuff in line. He has all his duckies in a row. So when the guy showed up, he was able to do it. It doesn't say it. But when you look at his actions, it matches up, doesn't it? What did the man have? He had oil and he had wine. No, not, not grape juice. He had some wine. That's why. Because that's what takes care of wounds. It kills the wounds. It dresses it. It makes it so it can heal. He had bandages with him. He put the man on his own donkey. He had money to take care of this guy. He was prepared for when the situation arose, he was able to actually go and be what his name lives up to today. So let me ask you this, all right? How can you prepare yourself today? What can you do right now to make sure you're prepared to be a good Samaritan when this situation arises Based on your situation, it honestly can be completely different. Everyone's different. There's no one same person. There's no cookie-cutter person, no cookie-cutter Christian. Everyone has a different thing that they can do. But one thing that I think we can do, honestly, as adults, to be prepared is to create margin in our lives. Ever heard that statement before? Create margin in your life. What do I mean by margin in your life? When you look at everybody's lives, we go everywhere, every place at the speed of light, don't we? We got kids who got to go to sports, we got to make dinner, we got to change the diaper, we got work we got to do, we got school we got to do, we got to go here, 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 and don't mess me up when I'm going here because I'm going to be late for something else, all right? We go at the speed of light, don't we? And we're constantly, constantly moving. What's margin? Margin is putting a little space in your life where you're not constantly rushing, where if someone needs to come to you for help, you're ready. What if someone comes up to you one day and be like, you know, Mark, I really need to talk about something. Let's, let's put it this way. They don't go to church. They're not saved. Someone comes up to me and goes, hey, Mark, I really need to talk to you about something. Someone's really bugging me. I'm really feeling down right now. Can you talk? Sorry, bro. No, I can't help you out, man. I'm too busy. Now, are there busy times in our lives? Yeah, yeah, there's busy times in our life. Honestly, the last two weeks have been some of the busiest times in my life, and it's not my fault. It's just what happened. There's busy times in your life, but let me ask you, is this just a busy season? Are you making yourself busy? Are you making yourself so busy that if someone wants to come to you, they're hurting. This is their chance to hear the gospel. And you go, sorry, I'm just too busy. I can't help you out. What about your kids? This, we do this with our kids all the time. And honestly, I know I'm not a dad. I don't know this kind of stuff yet. But I'm going to be a dad here real soon. Oh, my goodness. A kid raising a kid. This ain't going to be good. But we'll do it, Nicole. We got this, all right? We got this. But I'm going to be having a kid here soon. But we do this to our kids all the time, don't we? I know I'm going to do it to my kid. Why? Because I do it to Nicole. I, your kid might come up to you and go, Mom, Dad, can you do this with me? Can you play with me? Can you talk with me? Can you color with me? Mark, we need to talk about something. Can we just go out for a date? Can we just go to Dairy Queen or something like that? No, sorry. Well, well I guess I, I can use his name now. We know his name. Sorry, Elliot. I'm, Daddy's too busy. He can't hang out with you right now. Sorry, babe. I can't go on a date with you. I got too much stuff going on for me right now. Now, again, is stuff being busy wrong? No. But are we creating margin, intentional margin? It doesn't happen on accident, guys. It does not happen on accident. 
Are you creating intentional margin in your life where if someone comes up to you, you're ready to help? Now, there's a lot of other things that we can do to be prepared, isn't there? I mean, just margin is just one of the things that I came up with. But there's lots of things that we can do to be prepared. You know, we can memorize scripture. That's one of the best things we can do. If someone in our, in our church family is hurting, we can go, you know what? God says he'll never leave you or forsake you. Hold to that truth. Memorize scripture. Give, give scripture to people when they're hurting, when they're in need. Now, don't use that scripture in such a way where it's like, you know, like not the right interpretation, where it's like God can never give you more than you can handle. God never said that. God gives you way too much. So that, God gives you way more than you can handle. Why? So you can rely on him. So don't be lying to people with Bible verses, but memorize scripture to tell people how they can rely on God. You know, maybe it's just carrying a couple extra bucks in your wallet. So when you go to Starbucks, I go to Starbucks. I think everybody knows that. So when I go to Starbucks, I can pay for the person behind me and go, you know what, let me take care of you real quick, all right? And someone can go, whoa, why'd you do that? Well, it's because I love God and God loves me, so I want to show love to you. Boom, now we're talking about Jesus. I mean, that was just so easy, wasn't it? We can do stuff like that at your workplace. I mean, just, just anywhere you go, there's people homeless on the side of the street that need help. Give, do we give them money? Oh, they might go buy drugs with it. You don't know? What if you just take them out to eat? Say, hey, I'm hungry. Hey, dude, I'll go buy a little piece of pizza. I'll bring it back to you. They could be the most thankful person in the world. Why? Because we have something better than gold or silver. We got Jesus Christ. That's what we got. That's what we can do to people. Honestly, some of y'all are huggers. I'm a hugger. Maybe someone just needs a hug once in a while. You know, just say, it's going to be okay. God loves you. It's going to be all good. What are you doing in your life right now to be prepared when the situation arises? Are you doing anything at all? That's the first thing we can do. The second thing that we can do is we got to be prepared, but we also actually have to actually open our eyes. Now, I alluded to this just a little bit in terms of, of we got to be prepared, but actually open up your eyes to things around you. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's a lot of hurt going on in our world. There's a lot of hurt. Now, in the story, it's physical hurt. In our world, we have physical hurt, too. We have abuse. We have neglect. We have people who are on the side of the street with no clothes, no shelter, no food, no money, no loved ones, no nothing. There's a lot of physical hurt in our world. But is that the biggest issue I think we're dealing with? No, no, I really don't think it is. Emotional hurt is one of the biggest things that are killing people right now. You know, there's a lot of people walking around your workplace, walking around the community, even walking around the grocery store that are going through some of the hardest things that we could ever possibly imagine. We could not look at them and go, how do you go, how, do, how are you doing this? Because I know I couldn't do it. We got, everyone is dealing with something like that. You know, there's a lot of people out there whose husbands just left them, who they just found out their wife's cheating on them. They just found out that they got rent that's due today and they have no money on how to pay it. They might have a 15-year-old daughter who's in high school just got pregnant. Their son is addicted to crack, and they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Their husband might be, or their spouse might be, an alcoholic. People are going through so many emotional hurts. And you better believe, that does not stop at the church door. There are people in this church right now, and specifically Southside Baptist Church, there are people in this church right now are hurting more than you can ever imagine. But would you know it? No, you really wouldn't know it. Why not? Because as a good Christian, you're taught when you're in church, you smile, you look good, you cut your hair back, you look fresh, you know, you got to look good, you got to play the part. When someone asks you how you're doing, you go, man, I'm doing really good right now. When inside you're thinking, I'm not good. I'm not good at all. But we're taught, we, te- we teach kids to do it. You be nice, you be polite, you don't run in church, all right? Mom, mama's back there, she knows. I was told don't run in church, don't play in the sanctuary. I was told that all the time. We're told, this. I'm not saying you taught me bad, Mom. I love you. But we give this persona of everything's okay, everything's fine, everything is awesome. But is it really? You better believe it's not. Now, I'm a firm believer of using your life circumstances to actually pour into somebody else. 
Because there's a lot of people who are hurting in this room right now. You wouldn't know it, but they're dealing with the same thing you're dealing with or that you have dealt with. I'm a very firm believer of what did God not make you go through, but what did God allow you to go through that ruined your life completely? But you got out of it. You saw the light at the end of the tunnel. You're free. You're praising God. You're free. Why do you think God let you go through that trial? Do you think it was just because he wanted you just to suffer a little bit? No. He did it so your faith will be proven, but also that you can then turn and help someone else out who's hurting. Are you opening your eyes today? Am I opening my eyes today? Are you looking around at this church people right now? Are you looking out South Venice community as a whole? Or do you go into your car, drive home, then the next Sunday you drive back to church, come to church, come to sanctuary, you worship a little bit, sing some songs of Jesus, listen to a message, get back in your car, go back home, and you never see anybody else ever again. And you never talk to anybody else again except, woe is me, woe is me. Or are your eyes actually open? Do you have enough margin in your life where you can allow your eyes to be open? Are you so busy that you can't even see what's right in front of you? There's a lot of hurt that's going on in our world, guys. It's a lot of hurt in our church, and we can do something about it. And that goes right along to the next thing we can do. The third thing we can do in order to be a good Samaritan is we actually have to go. We can't be a church that sees a problem, knows we can take care of it, and just, just sit and do nothing. You know, we need to be a church that gets out of our seats and get into the streets. You know what I'm talking about? We got to get out of our seats. We got to get out of our comfort zone. We got to get out of our lives. We got to get out of this cushy little, little Baptist circle that we're in and go and actually do something to help the world around us. When the community sees Southside Baptist Church, what do they see? Do they see a church that, that we have this little gated area where people come in and once they come in, they don't go back out and they don't come out and they don't help us? Is that what people see? Or do people see, no, that's a church that's of action. They see a problem, they're out there helping. The women's shelter, they're out there helping. At the homeless shelter, they're out there helping. With people that need help, with service projects, Goodwill, Salvation Army, whatever you want to talk about. Is the church actually doing something? Or are they just in their seats and they're just in their little comfort zone? Now let me tell you this right here, okay? It's really uncomfortable to go. It's really awkward. It's not fun. And honestly, it's scary. It really is. But let me free you something real quick, all right? I'm going to free you of this. If you're uncomfortable and you feel awkward, you're probably doing the right thing, all right? If you're uncomfortable doing the mission of God and you don't feel comfortable, you're nailing it, man. But if you're comfortable, if you're just in your lazy boy and going, you know, life's good. I'm just watching my TV. I've got, got my Netflix. You know, I'm just watching all day long. Life's good. Got no kid problem. Got no marriage problem. Got no money problems. Life's good. But you're not uncomfortable. You got to look at your life and ask Am I being a good Samaritan? Am I actually getting out of my seat? Am I actually going to go and do something about it? That's what Jesus is telling us to do. He's not leaving us with the story of, oh, you know, the good Samaritan did some good things. What did Jesus tell us to do? Jesus told us to now go and do the same. That's what Jesus said. This was Jesus' command to the people that were listening, but ultimately it's the command for those who are listening right now who are reading God's word. God's command to go and do the same is just as relevant for the Jewish people of this time who hated the Samaritans as it is for us Christians right here in the 21st century. We are told to go and be a good Samaritan. So let me ask you, are you a good Samaritan? Are you going out there and being a good Samaritan? Or are you not? I gave you three quick steps, three quick processes of things you can do to get the process started. But you can take these three things, and honestly, you can just say, oh, that's what Mark said, but 
but honestly, I really don't believe it. You can take these three steps, implement them in your life, do what Jesus told you to do, and go and be a good Samaritan. Or, this is on your own head, you can take them and go, I ain't listening to that. You can either accept what Jesus is saying and go and be a good Samaritan, or you can reject Jesus. It's not Jesus' command you're rejecting. You're rejecting Jesus. You know why? What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to love the unlovable. He came to love the hurting. He came to go out there and to be God, be Jesus to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors, to the sinners. That's what he's calling you to do. That's what he's calling me to do. That's what he's calling Southside Baptist Church to do. So are you going to accept Jesus' command and actually get out of your seat and go do something about it? And I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me too, all right? Is G- what are you going to do? Are you going to take what Jesus says? Are you going to be a good Samaritan? Or are you going to reject Jesus? That's the question. So let's pray real quick. Dear God, we do thank you so much for, for honestly, this story. Story are, they're cool things. They're fun things. We, we love stories. There's nothing wrong with a good story. But, but this story, God, is so much more than just, just a simple story, God. This, this story has, has application and has meaning, and it's, it's a command, a command to go and to do the same. So I do pray that as we leave church here today, right now, that we'll, we'll implement these things. We'll go. We'll be a good Samaritan. We won't reject you. But we'll go, we'll go with our eyes open, prepared, ready to help the hurting and actually go do it. I pray that's everyone's call. That it, well, that is everyone's call, but I do pray that everyone will take up that call and go and do the same as the Good Samaritan. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now this is our time of decision. We do this at the end of every service. It might be a little uncomfortable. It might be a little awkward. There's nothing special about the pulpit. There's nothing special about these stairs. They're, they're just wood, man. That's all it is. It's just wood. But there's something about coming forward and saying, God, I want to go and do the same. I want to do what you told me to do. I want to be a good Samaritan. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's nothing special about it, but there's something about coming forward, putting your life on the line, putting your life on a blank check and going, God, have, have your way with me, God. Do what you got to do. So if you got something you want to deal with God about, come talk with me about, come talk with Pastor Scott about, feel free to do it, but let's go ahead and stand. And if you feel free, if you feel free called to do it, come forward.
Thank you, Mark, for that. Y'all be seated, if you will, for just a moment. All right, a couple quick things here. Um, Mark, thank you for bringing God's Word to us. Listen, I I hope you really examine your heart on that. Um, Some great, uh, just great stuff from God's Word and great application there. Man, how many of us lack the margin in our lives that we need, amen, to be able to do what Jesus has called us to do and um, be Jesus to to others. Um, So great, great word, Mark.